0: Well, as I said, um, when, I, when I started to kind of look again at our passage um, this week and think about um, how to continue on with the study of this grand, sweeping narrative of the, the flood, um, it's really difficult, I think, if you spend a little bit of time just uh, in, in the chapters that the flood, in which the flood is contained, the flood narrative is contained, uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8, um, Primarily, and, and you just kind of settle there for a while, maybe read over it a few times, maybe really think about uh, what's taking place, um, the implications of what's taking place, the, the implications of God's unfolding redemptive plan in history and in time that are um, in view here. It's really an overwhelming section of scripture. Um, it really is a, it, not just in terms of the narrative content, but in terms of the implications of what's being um, unveiled or revealed uh, in, the, in the pages of Scripture in this section. And so I, I, I think I got a little bit overwhelmed by it myself and just my own efforts and time to prepare. Um, but I do want to try to kind of bring some um, Form of an outline to us to consider, but what I what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to 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 do a survey basically of of the narrative of the the contents of the flood narrative, Um, and we're gonna so we're gonna kind of be touching on um, a range of verses throughout the entire narrative, not as a way to really get get through the narrative itself, but as a way to kind of emphasize a particular point that I think emerges from the entire narrative that is something that really needs to be emphasized. Um, and then as we move forward in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll dig deeper into um, you know, the verses and the passages as they unfold uh, in each of the chapters going forward. So today is not an effort on my part to try to rush through the totality of the narrative. It's really to make a more, I think, salient point that emerges when you look at the whole sweep of it in one big look. Um, it's what kind of what washed over me as I looked at it, and hopefully um, it will be an impactful Um, way to look at this and think about this for you as well. Uh, We obviously began, though, when we started chapter 6 in this flood narrative, we we began looking at the first eight verses with a little bit of detail. And what we saw there was what we called the spiritual backstory of the narrative. You really see um, sort of an introduction to the introduction of the flood narrative there. You really see uh, for the most part God's perspective and God's uh, input onto where this whole story is headed in the first eight verses. Um, but when we turned the corner last week, we started looking at the two central characters of the flood narrative that that really are introduced in some greater detail or, or sort of elaborated for us some of the characteristics of these two central characters uh, as, as it relates to the flood narrative, and namely Noah, and then obviously God, the sovereign God of wrath and rescue. Noah, this man of tremendous distinction, and then God, this God of overwhelming wrath and yet unbelievable grace and rescue and deliverance. And Of course, we looked at Noah in particular and how his life and his character in just these few verses that are revealed here when compared to the, the other verses that are describing the rest of society, he is this man that stands in unbelievable contrast to the society around him. Stark, stark contrast. That's really the thrust of the passage there when it describes Noah and his character, is that it's just such a tremendous contrast, not just to those in his home or his neighborhood or his community, but the entirety of society around him. Because the emphasis that we see here in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6 is this emphasis on the corruption of man. And then you have Noah and his uh, distinguished character being revealed as a tremendous contrast to all of that. Obviously, we see how um, the focus is on the corruption of society and on the violence of society at that time in these first few verses. Um, and then we see Noah starting off in uh, chapter really in, in chapter 8, how he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a recipient of the grace and favor of God. And so therefore, in verse 9, he was a righteous man. He was right with God. He belonged to God. He had fully given himself in faith to God. Uh, Hebrews eleven seven gives us greater uh, elaboration on the nature of his faith and the, how it Allowed him to become an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, talking of Noah. It says he was a blameless man in chapter 6, verse 9, someone who was really flawless. It's the same term that's used as, uh, in, for example, in, in Leviticus to describe a sacrificial lamb who was without blemish. So he, he, was, he had moral purity, he was a man who walked in, in virtue, uh, in, in consummate purity and virtue, even. Um, He was a very devout man. Uh, He walked with God, so his devotion was characterized by a walk, which is an indication of of daily living out his faith, daily living out his relationship and his position with God and his relationship to God in faithfulness and devotion. Um, He was an influential family man, and we took that as an inference from the fact that uh, his three sons and his wife and his son's wives Uh, joined in him in this enterprise, and there's no indication of fallout or rebellion or anything on the part of his family. They they found favor, obviously, in the eyes of the Lord, too, but they also were followers of Noah's lead in this, so there seems to be uh, at least an inference here of his influence in his own family. And then he was an obedient man, and we saw that in verse 22. We see that he had comprehensive obedience, that all these things that the Lord told him to do, which, by the way, were crazy things on the surface, on the face of it. Just crazy, crazy things. You know, build this giant wooden box that you're going to put all these animals in, and and you're going to do this in the context of a society who is bent completely against all the things of God, and you're going to do this as God commands you, and you're going to, in the process, proclaim imminent judgment. And that's the reason for this giant box that you're building in a land where there has not been rain. And yet it says in verse 22 that he did this. And not only that, but he did all that the Lord commanded him. So there's this characteristic of, of not just obedience, but comprehensive obedience that's really rooted, obviously, in a comprehensive faith and trust in his God. I mean, just imagine the degree and depth of faith and trust that ha- would have to be drawn upon to obey so willingly and so faithfully and for such a long period of time in the face of tremendous hardship and ridicule and who knows what. It's hard to imagine really what. And don't you think one of the reasons it took so long is he spent a lot of time preaching to the people who came to watch, to look at it. I mean, God always sends a prophet or somebody ahead of his judgment to give people a chance to repent. Yeah, so he was a proclaimer. He was. And there was, there was lots of time devoted to that. But then, of course, you know, constructing a vessel like this was no small task either. So just the time that was invested in demonstrating both in his faithfulness and proclaiming uh, who God was and his coming judgment, but also his faithfulness in carrying out this, what on the surface would be a, a really insane task was just an indication of his character as a very a, a great man, a distinguished man of obedience. And then we see this other character, and I, I you know I use the term character uh, for the sake of, of the context of our study. I don't certainly mean to diminish who God is by calling him a character in a story, but I think you know what I mean. In the narrative, he, he, is, he emerges, obviously, as a central character, and we're going to talk much more about that today. But we see him as this autonomous judge, jury, and executioner. Autonomous in that his judgment is based upon what he determined that he saw, that the earth was corrupt in his sight, and it was filled with violence. And he saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the way on the earth. In other words, we talked last week about how God's determination of judgment and his determination of the form of judgment or the means of judgment and his determination of executing that judgment centers completely and totally and exclusively on him. In his purposes, in his wisdom, he does not defer or refer to others to determine whether or not this thing that he is going to do is fair or right or just, that justice flows out of him because he is indeed fully just. And so he does have this characteristic, this sovereign characteristic of supreme autonomous judgment that's on display in these passages. But he's also a great deliverer. And this whole section is really focusing as well on this great deliverance of these few people, these few chosen, select people, Noah and his family. And not only that, we talked about how he's the designer of deliverance. And that's what's really a neat observation from this account, is that he's not just the deliverer, but he's the the meticulous designer of deliverance. And really, we see that characteristic of God all throughout Scripture, that God is... Not just proclaiming that he is a deliverer, he is not just proclaiming that he will deliver, but he actually pr- plans it out. There is detail in his plans and there are times throughout the unfolding of redemptive history where we see meticulous detail of those plans, and not the least of which is is what we see unveiled for us um, in the New Testament when the plan of Christ and his redemption was meticulously planned we've talked about I referenced that passage in Acts that says that according to the predetermined plan of God, Jesus was executed on our behalf. So we see God as autonomous, sovereign God of wrath and rescue in that He he judges things and judges people according to His own purpose and His own wisdom and His own plan, but His his deliverance is also uh, designed, and He is the designer of that deliverance. We did talk a little bit about... um, the dimensions of the ark, just to kind of set some of that in our minds, and and how uh, you know the the fact that it was really a, an ingenious design. Um, it's of, sea, of a seagoing vessel that could withstand the uh, the travail of of this type of event, this type of flood event. Um, and we talked. I referenced a, an article, a study that was done um, that really kind of highlights the fact that the dimensional design of the arc is still, from a, r- a proportional perspective, is still held up as a, a standard, basically, of design for, for seagoing vessels in terms of the pro- proportion of length to width to depth and that kind of thing. So there, there's been engineering studies and all that that have been done, and it's really, uh, it's really a remarkable um, uh, you know, understanding of, of the ingenious nature of, of the des- design itself. It's the only boat that was built on land and then landed on land, yeah. and it had a full load, so it didn't need a keel. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about the, the specifics of that. Okay. Um, we're going to get into some of the more, uh, I was thought I was going to do that this week, but I, I just, like I said, I didn't get to it. But we're going to talk some about the, the arguments against the veracity of, of the story and some of the elements of, the design of the, the vessel itself. But yeah, there's so much tremendous information and, and, and insight into this whole story that's just overwhelming um, about the goodness and omniscience and power and wisdom of God. Um, so we talked a little bit about that, but really I want to kind of turn the corner as we, as we kind of expand this view of this central character, namely God. Because as you look at the sweep of the narrative... You know, it's always important in, in biblical interpretation to, to begin with the text of Scripture, to begin where the text begins, and to really work our way out toward accurate interpretation, toward whatever applications might come from that. Um, and oftentimes what happens, in especially in uh, this particular section of Scripture, is that uh, people have a tendency to work their way out from Other thinking, whether it be um, other thoughts about what, you know, what could survive in this kind of flood, what kind of vessel could survive, or, you know, could these many animals fit on this kind of vessel? You know, there's these outside um, uh, sort of scientific studies or methodologies or whatever that are brought into the pages of Scripture, and then the Scripture is interpreted through that lens, and there's a real danger in in terms of just a principle of biblical interpretation in doing that. Now, that's not to say that you don't it's not helpful or useful to look at outside sources or anything like that, but in terms of just the principles of understanding what the scripture means by what it says. Really principles of, of biblical interpretation, it's important to begin with the text of scripture and really really start there intently. And context and those kinds of things. Dr. William Barrick kind of highlights this point. He wrote this article. Um, it's really a, it's on the, the issue of the flood. The title of the article is Noah's Flood and its Geological Implications. But he has this, this one statement, this one paragraph that I just want to read to you. He says, um, all study of the flood needs to begin with the biblical record itself. Careful analysis of the record in Genesis 6-8 through 8 should be the only basis upon which anyone considers potential geologic implications. However, in spite of the revelatory nature of the biblical record, many, many evangelical scholars continue to give up valuable ground to secular scientists and liberal biblical critics. Evangelicals too often attempt to baptize secular and humanistic theories in evangelical waters without realizing that those theories and their methodologies have never been converted. While there are valuable kernels of truth buried within contemporary critical and so-called scientific studies, evangelicals must take great care to irradiate the material with the word of God so as not to unknowingly and unintentionally introduce secularized thinking into the church. And what he's arguing for there is that if you want to study and understand what the flood narrative is about, you start and you begin with the flood narrative itself. And you work your way out from there. And that's true of any, any place in Scripture. And it's really the, the contrast between what is called eisegesis versus exegesis. These, these sort of technical terms in biblical interpretation. Eisegesis, just to give you a definition, is the act of imposing meaning onto a text and is often described in terms of reading into the text rather than out of it. Whereas exegesis is a systematic process by which a person arrives at a reasonable and coherent sense of the meaning and message of a biblical passage. Ideally, an understanding of the original text is required, and in the process of exegesis, a passage must be viewed in its historical and grammatical context with its time, purpose of writing taken into account. So then you get to this whole idea of what's called grammatical historical hermeneutics, which is something that that we would embrace here as a, as a method of biblical interpretation in our church. But just to give you a little bit of background of, of this principle, and hopefully I'll be able to pull all this together in just a moment of, of the importance of this. In 1515 A.D., Martin Luther rejected the elaborate fourfold hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the methodology of interpreting Scripture. It's a, the principles and you might call it the science of biblical interpretation or the methodology. He rejected the elaborate fourfold hermeneutic that had been predominant throughout the medieval centuries, and which led to some very far-fetched allegorizing of the Bible, leaving scriptural interpretation in the hands of the experts, who alone were capable of figuring out the secret things that Bible passages really meant. This would eventually lead to the great Protestant Reformation, which is therefore most fundamentally a hermeneutically driven struggle. In place of this allegorical hermeneutic, Luther proposed what he termed grammatical historical hermeneutic. According to Luther's new hermeneutic, which was actually just the recovered hermeneutic of the earliest church fathers, each Bible passage had one basic meaning, which was firmly rooted in historical truth and related accurately according to the common principles of human language. Thus, it was historical, relating real, interconnected historical events, that must be acknowledged and understood before the various teachings of the Bible could make sense or have application. And grammatical, using language the way any normal person would. This grammatical historical hermeneutic is absolutely vital, for it tethers the truth of the Scriptures to real historical events that have a real impact on our life. And it gives us a way to study the Scriptures with confidence according to well-established dictates of the human language. Another article regarding studying of the flood says, says it this way. The guiding principle used by secular geologists to interpret the rock record is, quote, the present is the key to the past, which means that the geological processes we see operating today at the rates they operate today are all that are necessary to explain the rock layers. While catastrophes such as local flooding and volcanic eruptions are allowable because they do occur today, any suggestion of global catastrophic flood as described in the Bible, is totally ruled out before the geological evidence is even examined. So the point in all this is that if you, if you start out here and you move your way back to the text, at minimum, you're risking missing the entire meaning and point of the text. Just from the standpoint of principles of biblical interpretation. And that's often what happens. And it's not just something that happens with this particular flood narrative. It happens quite often. In fact, we are probably often guilty of misapplying meaning to Scripture because it kind of suits us wherever we are in our lives. I'll give you an example. Um, when you think about um, the passage, what is it, uh, Jeremiah? For I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. Yeah, you do realize that's in a context, right? That's not something that you and I just get to kind of claim for our own. I mean, there's principles of God's provision that you can you know, lay hold of. But what, what do people often do with a passage, a verse of Scripture like that? That's right. It's like, this, is, this, is, this applies directly to me. And so they can actually misappropriate the real meaning of that passage of Scripture in a way that is not necessarily fruitful or helpful. And I'm not trying to argue that they would do that maliciously. I'm just saying it's an error that's, that's easy to make. But sometimes if you're in a difficult situation and you're seeking comfort, don't you think God can lead you to a passage like that, and in that particular moment you can take it out of context and apply it to yourself? Well, I think that you're talking about two different things. You're talking about something different than what I'm talking about. I think what you're talking about is how the scriptures and you know, along with the spirit of God in us can can use the word of God to speak to us and comfort us in ways that are directly applying to our hurt or our struggle. An example would be, you know, if you read in the Psalms or something and it might be a Psalm of David and it is a Psalm where he is really speaking about an actual historical events that took place. Maybe it's the whole you know, psalm of the events with Bathsheba and and his repentance in there. So those are actual real events, but those psalms, we can read them and apply them in ways that comfort us or that convict us. So I, I would agree with you there, but I think that when it comes to actually interpreting the meaning of the text as it was originally written, you have to understand, you have to go through a process of, you know, technical interpretation. See, there's a little bit of a difference there. So I don't mean to diminish what you're talking about as one of the means by which the Spirit of God, along with the Word of God, can bring comfort and speak to our hearts and, and give us encouragement and that kind of thing. You're talking about just from an overall study. We need to keep it in context. I agree. You need and to, and, and, to, or, or, and to really understand and and really also has to do with the type of literature that you're in as to as to how how broadly you can apply that um, to your own life uh, in in specific kinds of ways. And I'm really speaking to. Uh, another example, another sort of easy example, an easy target, is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's what you quote right before you start your football game, right? <laughs> and you go out to play because, you know, God help us you know, win this game because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever. I mean, I'm a little bit facetious here. But you understand what I mean. The context of that really is I've learned the secret of contentment in whatever circumstance I'm in whether in want or in plenty i can do all things through christ who strengthens me the context is contentment in the midst of any and every circumstance not you know i'm an overcoming conqueror who's going to go win this football game so that's what i'm that's what i'm getting at so but i don't take a text out of a pretext context to make a pretext that's right that's right but the the thing that the thing that really i think is most um, most illuminating when we think about this whole issue of hermeneutics, particularly as it relates to this whole matter of this grand sweeping flood narrative, is that so much of the criticism or even just critical analysis that employs not hermeneutics and principles of biblical interpretation, but secular science or um, our own sort of rational faculties and what we think is possible or not possible, you know, based upon our own experience, there's a failure, I think, to recognize that the root of that really can be pride, and that's where it gets really dangerous. It can be pride, and I'll I'll refer you to 2 Peter chapter 3, who kind of alludes to this principle. He says this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water, and by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. <clears throat> but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So it's this idea that my, my experience of things, my ability to ascertain information from the modern age of science, or whatever it might be, is really supreme and and really what we are observing now is what is always been and yet peter is saying hang on don't allow your pride to cause you to think that there are not acts of god that would take place that would completely disrupt your whole paradigm so my point in all this is that when you look at this flood narrative if you look at this flood narrative and you fail to see the centrality of God in the flood narrative. You will arrive at all manner of questions and confusion and doubt and whatever. And I go back to my time with some third grade students a couple of weeks ago. And they were asking questions. Just was the time they were studying the flood in their Bible curriculum. It was just, they were, that was what they were going through. And I was asked to come in and just do a Q&A session with them. And they were asking questions that were having to do with, how could this be and how could that be? Because from a, just a purely human perspective, they're right. There's, there's no way that, that that could happen. But they weren't thinking in terms of, well, God actually was really very much involved in this whole thing. Very directly involved in this whole thing. And when you look at the text of Scripture, you look at the sweep of Scripture, and this is what I want to do in the last few minutes that we have. I want to give you this great survey of the entire narrative to just make this point that you see God not just declaring that something will be, but he is so actively involved in so much of what is going on here that he is really the central character in this whole flood. I mean, I kept having this thought in my mind. This is God's flood. This is God's ark. This is God's redemption. He he is so central and, and, him, and, his, and he's not apologizing for anything, and he's not making excuses for anything. I mean, he's just out with everything. So if you look at the section in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, in this section we, talk, we call the spiritual backstory of the flood. In verse 3, and again, I'm going to do this pretty quickly here. This is in a survey fashion. But in verse 3, you see there God's determination of future judgment. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So you see this determination of future judgment, at least as it's revealed to us in the scriptures. Then in verse 5, you see God's assessment of man's corruption. So again, God's God's. Determining something, he's giving an assessment of man's corruption. It's all about God here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then in verse 6, you see God's grief over man's pervasive wickedness. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Then you see in verse 7, God's decree of comprehensive judgment. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then you see God's redeeming grace revealed in verse 8. God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see this indication of God's grace. But again, the focus here in the spiritual backstory is on God, God's determination of, the flu- of future judgment, his assessment of man's corruption, his grief, his decree of comprehensive judgment, and God's redeeming grace. It's focused on him. Then in the second section, in this preparation for the flood, in verses 9 to 22, starting in verse 9 of chapter 6, you see Noah's distinguished relationship with God. The focus there is how Noah was related rightly to God, to his maker, as a contrast to how everyone else was not related rightly to their maker there in verse 9 these are the generations of Noah Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation Noah walked with God that's the, that's the distinguishing moniker his right relationship with God then you see God sealing up the, excuse me then you see God's assessment of man's corruption again in verses 11 to 12 now the earth was corrupt in God's sight again in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth so again, God's assessment one more time in a little bit of a different term, a little bit of a different insight. with talking about the violence piece of it. but clearly full corruption. Then you see God's determination again, coupled with his decree of future judgment, future comprehensive judgment in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So again, God's Determination and decree of future judgment. And it's comprehensive in nature. And then you see God's redemptive plan revealed. So again, coming back around to that theme of God's grace on display. In verse 14 to 21, make yourselves an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how are you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh, uh, which is in the, in, the which is a, 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 in which the breath of life. Uh, excuse me. In which is the breath of life under heaven? Everything that is on the earth shall die. Am I getting this right? Yeah. His plan. 1421. I will establish my covenant with you. There's the covenant promise. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives. And everything living and all flesh you shall bring to every kind, uh, every sort, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing around, and on and on it goes. And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for them. So on and on it goes. This is God's plan of redemption. He's giving Noah direction. Here's what you are to do, and here's how this plan is going to unfold. Focus again on God and his plan. And in that plan, you see that promised covenant in verse 18. So God's grace being revealed as well. And then when you get into the actual prevailing destruction that's coming, that's being talked about here, it it comes then starting in uh, in chapter 7. And you see there that, first of all, God directs the entrance into the ark. In verse 1 through 5, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of heaven, and also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So again, God's directing this completely, giving specific instructions again as the prevailing destruction is upon them. Then you see that God seals the ark and secure to secure the promise that he made. God actually seals up the ark. In verse uh, 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons with them. No, excuse me, I'm sorry, drop down to verse 16. That's, there's just more detail about Noah and what happened there and them getting on the ark. But in verse 16, it says, And those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Again, this is God's plan, His purpose. This is His boat. These are His chosen ones that He is preserving according to His purpose. And then you go to the section in chapter 8, or excuse me, actually you see, uh, um, actually there's more here in in chapter 7. God initiates judgment in chapter 7, verse 10 to 12. You see there? He's the one that initiates judgment starting in chapter 7, verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day, 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven, were open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So God initiates the judgment. Then, God persists in judgment. So it's ongoing. It's prevailing. It's just persistent there. Starting in verse uh, 17 of chapter 7, it says, The Lord continued, or excuse me, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So God's persistence in judgment is on display here. And then God ultimately prevails in judgment. In verse 23, the first half, He blotted out, He, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And then finally, you see that God is the one who preserved His chosen ones. Only Noah was left and those who were with Him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So even in this section of the actual flood, it is God who is actively at work, directing the entrance to the ark, sealing up the ark forecasting the imminent judgment to come, initiating the judgment, persisting in judgment, prevailing in judgment, and then preserving his chosen ones as he promised. And then you get into chapter 8, and you see the deliverance and the covenant promise promise that comes after the flood. And again, it's, it's God's, God is the focus. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, "...but God remembered Noah, and all the beasts, and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided." And the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from heaven, from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So God began the process of completing this deliverance of his chosen ones on the ark. He initiated this action. Then God directs the final deliverance of his chosen ones, Look at verse 14 of chapter 8. In the second month of the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark. So he said, Go into the ark when I tell you. And now he's saying, Go out from the ark. This is God saying this. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, God directing this, so Noah went out, and his sons and his wives with his sons, wives with them. And then we see at the end there, God decrees a new covenant in chapter 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So again, God is the one who decrees this covenant at the end of this travail of his judgment. Now I raise all that up for us to just kind of make the point I would much rather someone come to the text of the flood narrative and say, you know what, I, just, I, think, it's, I think it's a story of myths. I really think it's, it's intended to have some spiritual purpose. It's intended to have some theological sort of meaning. But the facts of it, you know, the, the facts that are unfolded, it's really not true. It's not factually accurate and true. It's intended to be understood as sort of a, a mythical tale with spiritual meaning maybe kind of like an Old Testament kind of parable or something like that. I would, much, I would be much more comfortable with that kind of view, even though I would completely disagree with it, than to take something that is so explicitly about God and his purposes in assessing the state of things on planet Earth and his desire to preserve someone in redemption and his plan of how he's going to preserve them And his decree of how he's going to unfurl this amazing, overwhelming wrath and judgment. And his detailed planning of how that's going to play out. And his initiating of that judgment. And his persisting in that judgment. And his fully carrying out that judgment exactly as he said. And then his directing the provision of rescue. Get on the ark. Here's what you're to do. Go get on the ark now. Get all the animals in there on the ark. Now when it's time to get off, get off the ark. And then he establishes the covenant. The entire narrative is focused overwhelmingly without apology, without a lack of clarity on God and his direct, explicit purposes and plans of judgment and redemption and then renewal in a New Covenant. So to come at that kind of text and to try to put things into it, to have it mean something different than that, is much more problematic in my mind than to just say, I just can't, I can't believe that it's true. It has, to, it has to not be true factually, and it has to mean something else. That's why I gave that whole introduction about the importance of biblical interpretation. You can disagree with the veracity of the content there. That you know, you could, In other words, you can apply to that section of Scripture some genre of literature other than historical narrative and come to some different conclusions about it. And that, that would be at least logically coherent. But to come at the text and the narrative like that, that so overwhelmingly focuses on the activity and work and purposes and really prophetic utterances in God's plan of judgment here, and try to make it mean something else inside the text, a form of eisegesis in my mind, I think is really, really dangerous and does great damage to the meaning of Scripture. You end up losing this overwhelming sense of God's sovereignty, His sovereign purposes in salvation, His sovereign purposes in judgment, His sovereign character and nature to do all that He wills according according to how He pleases. It's so easy to miss all that and to get lost in the weeds of trying to reconcile how all the animals made it onto the ark as though that is something that God could not accomplish. When he is the central character in the whole narrative. So that's what I was overwhelmed by as I looked at this. God is capable of doing whatever he wills and whatever he desires and whatever he designs. And this narrative is so focused on his plans and his purposes that it's very difficult for me to start anywhere else in terms of understanding the purpose and plan of him revealing it to us in this way. That's all I have. It's 10 after. Any questions or thoughts as we close? We'll get into some more detail and some of the more, um, you know, various views on on the uh, the narrative and, and really some interpretive things that, I, that have been helpful for me to learn as well um, That I think are hopefully will be interesting for us as we look forward, uh, as we move forward, and in the text as well going forward. So let's pray.